As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Defend and share your faith with confidence. This is Unapologetic from Premier Unbelievable. Thank you for joining us on Unapologetic. I'm Ruth Jackson. And before we hear from today's guest, just a quick reminder to visit premierunbelievable.com for more shows, articles and resources. And you can also register there for the chance to win a free book. And if you enjoy listening to Unapologetic, then please do consider rating and reviewing it on your podcast platform. But now for today's show. I am absolutely delighted to be joined by the Reverend Dr. Michael Lloyd, Principal of Wycliffe Hall and author of Cafe Theology. He also recently co-authored a brilliant new book with Rachel Atkinson called Image Bearers. Michael, we've talked in a previous episode about the um, the sevenfold refraction of the image of God that you talk about in your book, Image Bearers. One of those sevenfold refractions that you focus on, I think might be surprising to some people, is sexuality. I mean, would you just say a little bit about what impact the image of God has on our sexuality? Because that may not be the obvious place that we go to when we're thinking of the image of God. No, but it's there yeah, in in Genesis. Um, it, it, God made us in his image, male and female, he created us. Um, so that seems to me to be somewhere near the centre of what being made in the image of God uh, is, or at least necessary to that uh, reflection of God. You almost need both genders in order to reflect something of the fullness of God. Um, and I think that... Uh, part of what is going on there is f- from our difference. And, and you know, the difference between male and female is very, very difficult to define, very, very difficult to articulate, but but everybody knows it um, <laughs> at one level. And and it's a call to community. It's a, com- it's a call to live with somebody who is other and different from how you are. Um, and that... Um, is is basically a way of saying be enriched, be expanded from your own categories, your own ways of 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 being human, um, and and be enriched by other ways of being human. Uh, so I think that is it, our sexuality is very much part of uh, what it is to be made in the image of God. Yeah. And, and what do you think that means for equality among the sexes? Well, equality is one of the other <laughs> refractions <laughs> that I talk about. Um, not least because uh, in surrounding cultures of ancient Israel, uh, the Babylonian and the Egyptian, 
they too had a doctrine of the image of God, but that was just the king, nobody else. And what um, the scriptures have done, what Genesis has done, is to democratize that concept and say, no, it is every single human being, uh, male, female, uh, you know, servant, maidservant, manservant, whatever, they are all made in the image of God. That's a radical, radical move in the history of uh, human thought. And um, so that's absolutely basic, as is the male and female he created them equal. Um, and, and and the ways in which we have not lived that have been shameful in, in human history and in church history. And we need to rectify that structurally, but also in our own attitudes uh, and actions. So what does the image of God show us about the purpose of our sexuality, do you think? Well, as I say, I think it is this um, call to community that we cannot be human on our own, that, that our sexual urges drive us uh, towards... Uh, engagement with that which is different from ourselves. Um, so I think that, that that's uh, that's part of it. It also actually says that sexuality is is good. It's part of the, part of the purpose of God. It's a good thing. We, again, the church has sometimes, to its shame, given a, an idea of um, sexuality as if it's a bit uh, murky and mucky. Um, it is not. It is God-given. It is God-intended, uh, and uh, it is part of what makes us human. So, um, I think I think it is that affirmation and that call to community that are particularly uh, how how this impacts and, and impinges upon us. So, what does that mean? Do you think for someone who is single, either by choice or not by choice? I mean, obviously they can still have the community element, but it, it may not necessarily mean the kind of you know meeting the end goals of of their sexual urges or their sexuality. No, that's right. And I mean, I think uh, I, I think it it says first of all that you need men and women in your life. It says that there is an enrichment to that diversity uh, that is uh, really significant. Um, and secondly, I mean, I think the person of Jesus, made in the image of God and made male in his case, um, that he was able to live the most fulfilled human life without actual sexual encounter. Um, and therefore our fulfillment as human beings is not dependent upon that. Our sexuality is, is really important, but sexual expression, uh, you, you can live an utterly fulfilled and liberating and impactful life without that. Uh, that, that is a possibility. And um, so I think it's quite a nuanced balance of things that the Christian tradition wants to say on this. 
So I guess on on the flip side, um, for someone who is in a marriage or a relationship, how can sexual desires and behaviour bring glory to God? Because as you say, that sometimes feels at odds with a Christian theology. Perhaps historically that's that's been the case. But um, you sort of argue in the book that that's, that's not the case. It's not murky past, as you say. So, so how can our sexual desires and behaviour bring glory to God? I think that one of the most profound human urges is not to be alone, not to be isolated, not to be um, always on the outside looking in. I think that is one of the great human fears. And and what sexual, sexual expression does is it actually kind of gets you in, inside the other person or around, around the other person, it actually blurs the distinctions between you and the other person. There's a sense in which you are becoming one, as indeed the, the, the phrase from Genesis is becoming one flesh. There's a, you don't stop being yourself, you don't stop being an individual, but you actually transcend that. So it becomes not a division, but an, an extension and an enrichment. That's what is going on. And, and that, of course, is a reflection of and an aspect of, I would say, our relationship with God, that we are taken up into God. We don't stop being ourselves, but we get transcended into this greater reality, this greater being, this greater person. So there's a, a real reflection. That's why... Um, so much poetry about the soul's relationship with God uses sexual imagery because it's a very good image. <laughs> um, and I guess this sort of ties in with the fact that perhaps, you know, within those relationships, you feel unconditionally loved. And there was a quote um, that you wrote in the book where you said, people behave best, not when they're required to, but when they know themselves to be loved, yeah. which I think, you know, you can do that within the context of other people or perhaps within the context of God. I mean, why is that, that people behave better, not when they're told to, but because they know they're loved? Yes, it, it's, it's counterintuitive, isn't it? Um, it's sometimes said of politicians that uh, they need need change, that like they're like nappies. They need change. <laughs> They, they need changing regularly and for the same reason. Um, and, and there's a kind of sense that that, that is how you keep somebody uh, up to scratch. That's how you keep them on their toes. That's how you keep them performing by constantly threatening to vote for somebody else or re remove your love or your acceptance from them. But actually, I don't think that is experientially how we do change we, we change when somebody loves us because we want to we don't change when somebody tells us to because we fear we have to um it there's an alignment with our desires when we're loved that it, and there's nothing so transformative as that michael did jesus have a sex drive uh yes because he was human 
uh, and and the whole doctrine of the incarnation as he was fully 100% human as well as 100% uh, divine um and it's sometimes uh, i remember one commentary reading a, a commentary of the story of uh jesus having uh, somebody come and wipe his feet with their hair and their tears um and asking did he have an erection and i don't know the answer to that question but i but i do know that if we have a problem with the question it suggests we haven't taken the full humanity of jesus seriously um yes but he was somebody who was completely at ease with his sexuality uh you can tell that from the warm relationships that he had with women, the deep, quite physical relationships that he had with men, uh, had John with his head on his uh, breast during the, the Last Supper, and and particularly, I think, by the very wonderfully non-judgmental attitude he had towards those whose sexuality was particularly broken, be it uh, the woman caught in adultery or the woman at the well. Um, and it's really interesting that the question that um, the disciples ask when they come back and are shocked to see him in conversation in public with a woman alone, uh, which would, would just not have been acceptable at the time. Um, the way that uh, one commentator translates that is, what are you after? Uh, now, as it happens, he wasn't up to any anything bad at all, but they assumed that there might be something. They assumed that he was uh, completely full-bloodedly male in his expression of sexuality. Um, but what actually happens there is that he does not take advantage of, of that situation at all. He is completely uh, restrained and responsible in his attitude to somebody whose experience of sexuality seems to have been very different from that seems to have been very broken and and quite uh, traumatizing um and that is that experience of male sexuality under control and expressed respectfully and trustingly uh is 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 healing of her and she goes away um, transformed by that that non-sexual encounter with a fully sexual male person, which has not, I think, been her usual experience. And I think that is part of uh, what we need to be. We need to be counterexamples to people's bad experience of being used sometimes even abused um, by the sexuality of others. We need to take a short break, but before we get back to the discussion, I want to invite you to take a look at a new unbelievable course. It's called Did It Really Happen? The Birth of Jesus. Perhaps you've been asked questions about the historicity of Jesus, or maybe you have questions of your own. We've made an in-depth course with experts and theologians diving into the historical accuracy and arguments for and against the Jesus birth narratives. You will be guided through all areas of the discussion with N.T. Wright, Emil Ewing, Daryl Bock and others. Check it out by visiting premierunbelievable.com slash courses. You're listening to Unapologetic from Premier Unbelievable. 
Welcome to Cape and Ray Hall, nestled in the beautiful landscapes between England's national parks. As a Bible school, we offer short-term courses aimed at fostering your spiritual growth and living in a community. Our historic manor house has something for everyone. You can enjoy indoor and outdoor adventures, connect with students from around the world, and learn how to deepen your relationship with Jesus Christ. Search Cape and Ray England for more information. There's a great line in your book where you say we desperately need Christians to reflect their Lord in his sexual safeness, which yes. I think is clearly her experience there. Yeah. I mean, what, yeah. what does that look like practically, do you think? Oh, I think that means that we, although um, our sexuality is an innate part of who we are, it's only one part of who we are. And we need to treat people as whole people uh, we need to treat them not simply as sexual objects but as um, whole subjects uh, we need to be interested in them intellectually and socially and in their work and in their in every area and aspect of who they are um, and the sexual only makes sense in the context of the whole of life that's why the Jewish and Christian traditions has always said that sex's proper place is, is in marriage, is in a place of commitment and acceptance and totality, not out of that context in one area of putting one area of life over against the others. Um, sometimes I think people say, you know, when, who are justifying casual sex will say, well, why, you know, why can't we, you know, what? have sex with with whoever we like and the answer is well what is sex trying to say if it's just a way of saying a physical way of saying i fancy you of course why shouldn't you have it with anybody but if it's trying to say um i want our lives to be as entwined as our bodies then it only makes sense where those lives are entwined where there is a mutual commitment uh, and uh, you're going to be there the next day, the day after that, the month after that, 10 years, 20 years, 50 years down the track. Uh, and in that context, there's a real acceptance of the totality of the person uh, in which the expression sexually makes sense, gives expression, deepens that commitment. But at, without that, it, it doesn't say what it should be saying. And it is fragmenting rather than um, integrating. And so do you think that's why Jesus's sexuality was so healing? Because he saw people for their whole being rather than just as sexual objects? I think that's exactly right, yes. And I think you see that in John 4 in the, in the encounter with the woman at the well. Do we have any idea why Jesus didn't marry? No, we don't. Um, in the book, I quote... Uh, somebody, um, Sister Margaret Maudlin, is saying that she thinks it's because he had too much love to give and it would have been just too intense for any one person to have been on the receiving end of. He needed to love the world um, and and anything else would have been too much. That's, that's speculation, but I think it's kind of interesting speculation. Um, but no, uh, to be honest, we don't know why he didn't 
And I guess we've talked about sort of Jesus's approach and his sexuality, but did Jesus explicitly say much about sex? Just before I get onto that, I mean, I think the fact that he didn't marry is actually one of the aspects of his uniqueness, his being prepared to go against social expectation. One of the uniqueness things that we were talking about uh, earlier. Um, yes, he was. He was prepared to go very much against what social convention and social mores were. Um, did he speak much about it? No, he didn't speak a whole lot about it. That's partly, of course, because um, in the Jewish context that he lived in, there wasn't a whole lot of dispute about sexual morality. There was about the social expression of that in terms of, as I say, whether you could talk to a member of the opposite sex in public, all that sort of thing. And he was very happy to go against that. But there wasn't much controversy, and therefore he didn't need to say very much. When you see the uh, gospel being taken out into the Greek world, where uh, sexual morality was very different, then you begin to get people like St. Paul talking about it, uh, because it becomes an issue, and it wasn't particularly an issue in the culture of Jesus' day. I'm perhaps asking you to put words into Jesus' mouth, so please forgive me if I'm asking you to do that. But do, do we have any sense of what Jesus might say about some of these topics that are just huge now around kind of gender identity and sexual, like sexuality, sexual ethics? Do we have any idea what Jesus might say into some of these difficult situations? Uh, <laughs> um well, it's um, well, I'll have a stab at it, but um, uh, they are very fraught, and I, I wouldn't want to claim that I would be able to articulate Jesus' view on the subject. But, but I think it might be to see gender, to try and see gender as a gift and not as a constraint. All the gifts of God are gifts and not constraints in the end. Uh, and if they involve constraint, that's actually for our good. It's never for our diminishment. And I think in all the very difficult and, and real issues surrounding this, um, we just need to say, okay, where where is the gift here in, in our gender and um, and in our sex, sexuality, let's begin to see that as, as, as gift. I think it's really important that we remember as we do that how Jesus sat loose to particular social expressions of those genders uh, and, and did not see himself constrained in those ways. Um, so there's a again a kind of nuanced thing here. Let, let's not have set ideas, too strict ideas of what is male, what is female, but let's see maleness and femaleness as gift and as enrichment and as joy. Um, something along those lines, I think. Now, Jesus's lineage was hardly squeaky clean when it no. came to sex, was it? Would you just say a little bit about that and how that speaks to us as sort of sexually broken people? Oh yes, uh, the if you look at the um, family tree, uh, well, it contains prostitutes like Rahab. 
it contains uh, people that cheats like Jacob. It, it contains uh, a whole mass of people whose sexual history is um, pretty unimpressive. Uh, and and that's what Jesus is born into. That is what he is, you know, there's an old expression in or phrase, slogan almost from um, the early church, which is that which is not assumed is not healed. That which Jesus doesn't come into and take on himself uh, is not actually put right. That's him coming in to a very, very warped and distorted and sometimes violent sexual history and heritage and he lives a very different kind of sexuality um, within the humanity that he's been given and he's inherited that's what gives new opportunities and possibilities to the human race i think well and as you say in image bearers jesus was not ashamed to own those deeply sinful people as members of his own family um, which I think is a really powerful thing. So I suppose as... as well, we he doesn't have to... much choice, does he? If he wants a family <laughs> at all, <laughs> then I'm afraid there aren't, aren't any other candidates, really. <laughs> so I guess in light of that, how, how do we better reflect Jesus when it comes to our own sexuality? I think it is um, correcting ourselves when we're ever tempted to see our sexuality as... Uh, shoddy, uh, shoddy in any way or a constraint or wrong con kind of constraint uh, and an attempt to see it um, just as, as a, an element of our faithfulness that our faithfulness to our partner is a reflection of our faithfulness it's part of indeed our, our faithfulness to God um, and and our faithfulness to our partner is going to shape the, the climate of our world in the sense that um, it helps to make God more believable. Where people have seen fidelity in human relationships, they're more likely to be able to believe in it uh, when it comes to divine relationships. They're more likely to be able, be able to believe in the fidelity of God if they've seen fidelity in human beings. Um, so we begin to make God more believable by our faithfulness to our marriage vows or to our uh, chaste situations. Um, I think there's something extraordinarily powerful about people being faithful to their, their calling, be it a, mar a married calling or a single calling. Michael, as we finish this, how does God bring restoration to sexual brokenness? <laughs> um, as in anything, everything else, it's um, through acceptance. That's what the woman at the well found. That's what the woman caught in adultery found. That's what um, people throughout history have found. It's the acceptance that is transformative. Um, and we need to imbibe that. And I mean that almost literally. Um, that's what goes on at a Eucharist. You are imbibing the acceptance of God. You're drinking liquid love and edible eternity. And, and that's one of the modes in which we receive 
God's acceptance, God's love, God's value, which is transformed. We then want to reflect that experience of his faithfulness with faithfulness of our own. Michael, thank you so much. It's a real pleasure. Thank you for listening to Unapologetic. I'm Ruth Jackson. And as always, you can find out more about our guests through the links with today's show. We would love to hear your feedback. Do drop us an email with your thoughts at unbelievable at premier.org.uk or get in touch via social media. And don't forget, there are more shows, articles and resources at our website, premierunbelievable.com. You can also register there for the chance to win a free book. That's premierunbelievable.com. And if you enjoy listening to Unapologetic, please do consider rating and reviewing it. Thank you for listening and see you next time. You've been listening to Unapologetic. For more shows, resources and our newsletter, visit premierunbelievable.com. Welcome to Cape and Ray Hall, nestled in the beautiful landscapes between England's national parks. As a Bible school, we offer short-term courses aimed at fostering your spiritual growth and living in a community. Our historic manor house has something for everyone. You can enjoy indoor and outdoor adventures, connect with students from around the world, and learn how to deepen your relationship with Jesus Christ. Search Cape and Ray England for more information.